0: Hello dear friends and welcome to The Natural High which is a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. This week I have a beautiful guest. But before I go into that, I'm going to let you know about where I am right now in the world. I've moved down to Carmel by the sea. It's on the central coast of California. It is quite beautiful. We've traveled here a few times before, visited for a weekend, but we decided to take the plunge and live here a little bit longer. So we've got a three month rental initially and we are enchanted by the place. It is a little bit like Middle Earth. It's full of little tiny, cozy cottages and gingerbread houses, and it is incredibly well preserved and maintained. There is not a leaf out of place in Carmel-by-the-Sea. The average age of the population is around 56, 57. So a lot of people have had their jabs already. So the town is Well, the city, if indeed it is a city, is returning to something approaching normality. A lot of people out at the uh, bars and restaurants which abound in Carmel by the sea. There's some lovely restaurants and cafes here. There are also many, many art galleries and wine tasting rooms. It really is a charming place. Uh, There is Carmel Beach, which is one of the nicest beaches I've ever seen. You've got Pebble Beach golf resort on the banks and then on the other side the pacific ocean and a golden stretch of sand sandwiching the two in the sandwich it's got so many beautiful trails for the dog it is it's just so user-friendly and people are friendly here you don't get honked when you're just doing the speed limit you don't get mad maxed off the road people say hello my beautiful five-month-old daughter is trying to help me with the intro i'll be amazed if we don't have some kind of histrionics through this intro but anyway so yeah karma by the sea come and check it out it's absolutely beautiful i will leave a link to the current place that we're staying on oh baby doll baby doll bye bye oh my goodness oh my goodness uh so my guest this week is my beloved sister naomi DeBarra, who i should really have introduced her first as an occupational psychologist, a brilliant mind, but she also happens to be my sister. I've been wanting to have this conversation with her for many years. We have had fascinating conversations during the period of her study, which has been a decade of study to become a chartered psychologist. She now has her own practice, a thriving practice, integratespsychology.co.uk is where you can find it and find out more about her. But uh, yeah, we've had so many great conversations about the brain psychology over the years, and I just wanted to share her with my listeners really because um, she's got so much to tell us about the brain about psychology and about how we can optimize our lives really she told me some stuff during this conversation which Uh, is hopefully going to unlock better, deeper, more efficient learning for me and just help me optimise my life. She told me some amazing stuff which I had no idea about. Neurodiversity, um, for one, and also, you know, the dangers of Myers-Briggs. We talk about the need for antidepressants, whether they are actually required. We talk about whether the brain is still growing as we enter our middle age and so many other brilliant areas of discussion as well it's one of my favorite conversations that i've had so far in the natural high it's a beautiful flowing two-hour convo and um, i just cannot wait for you to share it she's a wonderful kind human being she's one of my best friends she's a real inspiration to me and yeah it's just such an easy conversation to have with an absolute superstar so if you want to find out more about her from the natural high, go to the naturalhighclub.com forward slash psychology. And if you like the show, please leave a short review on whichever platform you're listening to this podcast. Without further ado, let's crack on then. Enjoy the show.
1: <sighs> the Natural High Woo! <laughs> How's
0: it going? Can you see me? No, not yet. Thank God. I don't want to you... minimize myself. Yeah, minimize yourself.
1: I want to see you. No, you
0: can't. I mean, normally, normally I accede to the requests of my guests to see me if they want to, because of course that's up to them. I personally find that. Uh, I can't really focus as well when um, somebody's face is looking at me at the same time. Like this is an audio interview after all, and yeah, I find that it's I, I lose focus. And so even when somebody does, you know, say they want to do video, I just put another page over the video screens. <laughs>
1: we were having this conversation the other day, weren't we? About about seeing yeah. ourselves in video. It, but-
0: Yeah, that's it, and you know, for me, it's like, and also the other thing, the other uh, caveat that I have is that so I woke up at four a.m. and I was freezing cold. But you know, when you're sort of too cold to do any, I was too cold to sleep, but I was also too cold to do anything about it. (laughs) So I, so I lay there like freezing (laughs) cold, trying to find like extra tiny little bits of this blanket in order to keep myself warm, and then I, and then at five fifty-six. I looked at the clock at 5.56. I was like, I've got to get up and do something about this. So I went and put on, you know, like loads of clothes and then got back into bed. But then by that time, <laughs> I couldn't sleep anyway because I didn't want to let you down.
1: Oh, babe. Do you know, so so my story so far today is that we were having my um, friends and I enriched over this evening for dinner. And um, some insight into my brilliant brain now is that she texted mm-hmm. me at uh, 11 o'clock this morning and she said, is there any chance we could do 12.30 instead? And I was like, yeah, of course you can. So, you know, in fact, it was earlier than eleven. It was about ten. So I got up, prepared everything, did everything for for lunch. We're li- We're literally sitting downstairs having dinner about five minutes ago. I was like, something. I something. I saw your message. Thank goodness. And was like, oh my god. <laughs> I've, got oh, go. wow. I've got to go. Wow. Wow. And, then, like, and I, there was me thinking. Was there,
0: like, was me thinking was e- there was me thinking it was a big. There was me thinking it was a big event in your life.
1: It is it's so is a big event, but it's if, so, if apps, something somebody apps. adds something in, if something adds something in that distracts me, then I'm no use to anybody. So that was a really distracting thing today because in my sort of time perception of the day, I was busy at three o'clock, um, but yeah. it didn't interfere with my thing at seven o'clock, but then the seven o'clock thing changed, and then yeah. So
0: basically seven o'clock, your your evening dinner date turned into a luncheon.
1: Yeah, basically.
0: Wow, and so, but obviously not a boozy luncheon. Then
1: I've had a rum and coke. This was my concern. I've had a rum and coke.
0: (laughs) You look so bright and breezy. You look very sharp. You don't look like you've had any booze at all. You look like just you know just been coiffured.
1: I know it's it's years of practicing alcohol and making it look like nothing's nothing's going on.
0: (laughs) Well done. And was it an enjoyable luncheon?
1: It was really nice. We've not seen friends for a long, long time, so. Yeah, really, really good. Just lovely catching up on people's lives and understanding what they've been going through and everyone's different challenges um, in lockdown. Um, So interesting when you sort of get past the, you know, what have you been doing and actually dig deeper into, you know, how people have been feeling and stuff. Uh, Because it's been Mm. so isolating, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Really nice to see some friendly faces
0: of course yeah but what do you think about the do you think it's detrimental not to see people it, to interact with people in the flesh again with something we touched upon like but you know are, so do you think it, it does make any difference i mean with the modern technology we have with zoom and stuff like that like i can see you now you know it, we, 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 i feel like we're interacting i'm responding to your facial gestures and stuff like that so
1: i thought like i turned my, my face off i thought that you could like not see me no, anymore no, okay no, i've stopped you still, now stop, you stop picking now. your nose <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, do, you, do you think there's a difference
1: do you think you yes, lose something i do i absolutely do it's really interesting i was having this conversation i was doing a, a webinar a while back i think you might have seen actually with this yeah, um digital specialist um and prior to the webinar we had quite a few sort of green room sessions where we were talking about the types of things we would discuss and she is um, an expert in, in VR in virtual reality headsets and creating sort of, um, you know, virtual scenarios at home so that you can feel as though you're with people. And she was really mm-hmm. pro this sort of idea. You know, it's been in the making for years. Uh, Microsoft are doing a huge thing with it and they're really, you know, launching this, this very, very exciting kind of um devices in order to you know Can I just people... interject
0: very quickly so these devices are they like the google x glasses where you look through glasses and you can see lots of like um augmented reality or virtual reality stuff in front of you that's not actually there is that yeah the
1: absolutely they look a bit bigger than that the, the the ones that she showed us look a bit bigger but it's exactly that so it's you know kind of right. 3d sitting there so you'll you know turn your head to the left and you'll or the right and you'll see the person sitting next to you you'll have a conversation with them right. it's you know it's a really kind of virtual meeting room so um like so, yeah.
0: hologram holographic stuff
1: absolutely almost. absolutely mm. and she was really passionate about it and she was talking everyone was so excited in what she had to say um and then we started talking about um connecting with people and and how you know in human beings interact there's you know a human being each side of the conversation and then the stuff that happens in between you know this kind of central point of connection um and it's mm. it's the way that we create and interpret the stuff that happens between us. Um, and you know, that's through mm-hmm. different lenses. And actually, um, although it can be done remotely to, to an extreme, um or to, you know, uh, not to an extreme, it's the wrong word. That's the Roman coke. Um, although it can be um it, it it can be experienced, you know, a little bit to a degree that connection of seeing people is something so different you know there's like an essence to it that we don't Uh get remotely and like Uh we were talking about the other day you know our brains you know we are social beings we are designed to be social everything about us is designed to be social Um, and one of those things you know that we we need and use so much is reading other people's body language and all of that sort of underlying language that isn't spoken Um, And we see, you know, it's so reduced remotely, you know, we don't see those micro movements of the face or the body or, you know, how open someone's body is when they're talking to us um, or how defensive they are as well. Similarly. Um, And, and so, yeah, I think a lot can be lost. And I think there's real benefits to that as well. So if you think about the idea of working in sort of a big corporate or any organization where you've got a very senior leader who, um, you know, leads thought um makes all of the decisions through group think um and everyone follows them you know lots of that can be due to due to their physical presence and being in a meeting right. room and actually when yep. you're um remote that power is very much diluted so i think mm. there's definitely pros and cons to um to the usefulness of um of you know zoom and r- remote stuff but yeah i think connection really matters i think that we're missing a lot. Um and um people are feeling, you know, lots of the clients I work with are feeling, you know, the imposter syndrome is just at its biggest at the moment because we can't have those kind of, you know, coffee room chats or, you know, um the chats as you're, you know, wandering to your desk and back to just check in with someone how they're feeling and, you know, what they think about a recent project or anything like that. You know, all of those very important conversations are missed at the moment. Um, so I think that people are definitely missing that connection, you know, in, in, in a work environment anyway.
0: But does it depend on the person as well? Because, I mean, you strike me as an extrovert, but people always say that I, they think I'm the most extroverted person ever. But actually, you know, I do enjoy being in people's company. Of course I do. But it also drains my energy. Like yeah. I feel like I need to prepare In order to be in people's company and I need to prepare my energy and and it and it takes from my energy to be with them whereas for other people and I'm I'm sort of throwing you in here because I reckon you you might be the same like you get energized by by people being around you
1: Uh, yes and no and it's really interesting because the definition of you know this sort of idea of extroversion and introversion is where we get our energy from so by your description there you're an introvert because you say people take my energy away from me so well, um, I
0: know it's, and no, I don't want to, I don't want I don't want to frame it like that. I don't, people don't take my energy away from them. I just, it, it I, I take the energy away from myself by the way that I sort of emotionally prepare for it. I suppose. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Do you know? I think it changes through life. So you know, I think introversion and extroversion is really interesting. I think that there's lots of people that are ambiverts that sit very much in the middle. And I yeah, think that right. you know we're really co- you know complex as well. So depending on our cognitive resource, depending on you know, how we're feeling emotionally, if we're feeling emotionally regulated or not, you know, other people have a big impact. And also, you know, other people are very complex as well. You know, I might be filled up with energy by someone that I feel very confident, comfortable with. I could chat to you, for example, Mm. at any time of my day and not feel anxious. You know, it wouldn't matter if I said not very much or I often said a lot, you know, it wouldn't have an impact on my levels of cognitive resource and energy. Whereas other people, you know, It's the same for everybody, you know, it doesn't matter how extroverted you are, it really depends on that environment. And by the environment, I mean the people that you are integrating with and and interacting Mm. with. Um, So yeah, I definitely think I've become less tolerant as I've got older in terms of um, people taking my cognitive resource. I think that we have a finite amount each day. Um, And I think depending on the tasks that we're doing at work um, and life and parenting and all of those different things, um there's certainly days that I absolutely don't want to see people and for me the phone is a big no-no so um I'd rather sit and have a conversation with someone face to face but if I have to have a phone call with them late at night I off- that often can feel really intrusive um and and it feels like very effortful like you said you know that real sort of effortful um you know feeling of interacting with people so you know, I, I think that by boxing people as introverts and extroverts um, isn't that useful. I think that, you know, it depends on the situation. I think I I used to be... You're
0: so right. You're so right. It's absolutely about the person. You've added a new layer to it and you've added a new layer of clarity for me because, yeah, I'm not... It depends on who I'm with. Yeah, absolutely. The, it depends on the energy of the person that I'm with. And I totally agree with you. Like, it's no effort to speak to you whatsoever. Like, you're probably the only person in the world who I'm doing this interview today, I wouldn't, I didn't postpone it. You know, if it'd been anybody else, I probably would have postponed because of my, you know, my my, my trials and tribulations last night of being freezing cold. <laughs> Whereas I, I I woke up and I thought, this is just going to be so much fun. Why do, why do you think we love each other so much?
1: Um, I really like you. I think that that's got a big thing. <laughs> like wow. I really do. Like there's not, you know, it's another thing about the tolerance. I think as I get older, I become more selective on the people that I really enjoy you know I really like um that energize me that interest me that add value and you know I think we've talked about values a lot in the past but I think as we get older we become much more aware of our values and I think that spending time with people that have very different values um can be draining you know and I think that Mm. Um, you know we have similar um, lenses in many ways to life I think we have some similar values I think we've got a lot of shared experiences as well and we've got similar views of our shared experiences which I think can be really useful and kind of makes us feel you know brings us together more but yeah I like you like you 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 really interest me as a human being I love our chats They they make me so happy you know you'll always more, add something more. else to, to... <laughs> more are handsome funny <laughs> well I I think
0: thank you that's very very sweet of you I don't I'm not very good at compliments at all and I wasn't asking that question because I wanted to compliment but more just because we do really do love each other so much don't we yeah, it's a very like do. unconditional um, family love which is you know family relationships can be very challenging well I, I I really admire you I I really do I admire you I admire the way that you go about Things which I don't necessarily do it the same way as you. Like I cut corners in life, but you always, yeah, you do things the right way and you approach life in the right way, and it's so impressive. And like you that, do so. That's so interesting, beautiful.
1: though. But that, that's your perception, like you know, your perception yeah, of, of me of me doing things. Like, give me an example of me not cutting corners. Because I feel well, like you just I just cut spent corners. nine
0: years. <laughs> you just spent nine years becoming a chartered psychologist.
1: <laughs> you know, but. You know, I could have, you know, become better at doing it and I could have studied more and harder. And, you know, I definitely did it in, in, you know, the the, one, of course, it's not easy, but, you know, I did it to the minimum you know, it was so many people give up on
0: those sorts of calls. So many people give up. I mean, think about the people that were around you when you started. So many people just like fall at various different hurdles because they're just like, I just cannot be bothered with this shite at this point in time. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, and you'd have had that feeling so many times and you know, so many of those hurdles, I would have just been like, yeah, I'll just put it on the back burner for a while, but you just, you just ground it out.
1: Yeah. And, and I think it's to do with, you know, for me, I think it's to do with, I had a really nice clear goal. I also knew what, the other situation would look like so as you know i left school didn't didn't study didn't get a degree went into the workplace worked my way. tell me a
0: little bit more about that give me a bit more detail rather than just like flying through it because it's like like, it's very interesting because you you know yeah i don't i I don't know i need you to bridge the gap for me because i don't know like i remember the school bit and all that sort of stuff but i don't remember how you really got onto this path of your life okay so um because so, you really struggled at school, didn't you? you yeah, were ill for quite a long time. Yeah,
1: I did. I was really. I've been really reflecting on this for the past couple of weeks. Actually, thinking about this um, uh, interview, and also thinking about um, lots of the lots of the stuff that I've learned since. I've gone. I've gone down a really interesting path with psychology, which I think is very much linked. And I'll get there. So, school loved it. Really enjoyed it. Was easily distracted. Didn't see myself as academic or bright at all saw myself as you know as friendly and you know would try anything and and really really enjoyed my schooling um had a 18 month gap um because of glandular fever school what asked me age? to go back a year about 13 school hmm. asked me to go back a year and I decided not to scrape through GCSEs um tried my ear levels twice I eventually scraped through them um but you know there was nothing I mean I've I've I have i I've recently put all of my sort of um academic stuff on the wall. Um and I've been toying with the idea of putting my GCSE and my A-level results up there because they're terrible. I mean I pass, but they're really bad, just as that reminder that, you know, it's it's to do with the time and the space and the environment in terms of what what people can achieve. Um and um so yeah, so a scrape through um and very much was excited about getting into the workspace. I'd worked since I was about fourteen anyway at Gap and pubs. Well, not from fourteen, but you know, I'd, it'd always been important for me to work and have independence. Um, so moved into um, sales roles. Um, I've sold Walkers crisps and Tropicana and Pepsi um, wow, I didn't in, know that. in the frozen food aisle. I sold peas at um, Sainsbury's. Um, for an organisation that did. Can't, uh, can't massive... people just
0: like choose their own peas? Do they need somebody to sell
1: them? Well, I used to go in and like sell them. Uh, you're things. probably
0: asked to leave the shop. There's a girl in the aisle trying to sell people peas.
1: What did she do with those peas? So so yeah, so I um I used to sell sort of marketing space. So yes. you know, if like you know, Vandenberg or Unilever or someone, you know, wanted to up their sales, then I'd go in and speak to the sort of frozen food manager um, and say, right, you know, point we'll of give sale. you extra it's a point of sale, we'll do a bog off yeah, deal or promotional sort of stuff stuff. Yeah. I absolutely hated it. I literally hated. It. I used to drive to Brighton every day from Canterbury um and i just hated it so six months in i went into recruitment through a friend really enjoyed it 18 months later was bored missed being out i hated an office environment i really recognize this now i hated going to the same space every day um and just sort of visually being feeling quite enclosed um you know going to the same place for lunch every day you know that i just absolutely Mm. hated it um dying slowly yeah absolutely just staring at the clock just that sort of you know getting in and you know thinking wow it's quarter past nine I've got through 15 minutes amazing oh,
0: um gosh. yeah just
1: just you know horrible and so then um I went away traveling and I spent a year in Australia I spent a year in Greece and I went to Australia for three months which was amazing um moved mm-hmm. to London um I am um, I Thought about doing some singing. I did some singing with my wonderful brother. Um Great and nice. Yeah, and just didn't feel as though it was my thing. Um, lo- still love singing massively. It's a huge passion of mine, but don't know why. It's a fool's
0: errand, though, isn't it? It's a fool's errand doing it for, as a career. I mean, there's such a yeah. small chance of ever succeeding.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, yeah, I've. Um, it's, it's, it's the interesting industry as well, isn't it? You know, it's not just about singing. It's about taking the industry on. There's not many careers where you know you have to consider the industry as well as the career whereas with mm. with singing and music i think that there's you know two or three different elements that you've got to sort of contend with
0: i'm sort of pleased i got off off yeah, the train absolutely. because you know it, do it for fun but like doing it for as a career is just like such a difficult career path i'm
1: still gutted you got off the train though because i miss your songs like i really do <laughs> biggest fan whatever um anyway so back to me um
0: (laughs) absolutely get another rum down you girl
1: (laughs) so um yeah so then i um went away came back went back in sales moved to london had a couple of years lived with medical students um who um said to me why don't you do pharmaceutical sales and that was the beginning of my pharmaceutical career um and i spent about three years uh, three months sorry repping four months repping maybe and then i moved quickly into a leadership role and really loved managing people And really found the kind of psychology behind managing people absolutely fascinating in terms of my own Mm -hmm. psychology like my response to how i coped with situations i'll never forget i was i think i was three months into managing And um, I was having, I had a field visit. We used to sort of go out and and, and visit um, sales representatives for the day and see how they were interacting with customers and things. And I had a, I was summoned by one of my sales representatives to go and see them in in South Wales. Um, And I turned up to this sort of notorious sales representative had been in the business, for over 50 years. Um, Really experienced chap. And the idea for him of a 20 something, you know, mid 20 year old woman, going to manage him was the most atrocious thing he could imagine. Yep. Um, yep. So he called me to tell me that. So he called me to South Wales for a, <laughs> for a conversation to tell me, and I walked into this Holiday Inn or something similar, and he was sitting with his arms crossed and he said, just so you know, this is never gonna work. And I was so like, ridiculous, wow. Isn't it? I know, but it was, it was such a, you know, I was so surprised at my reaction because rather than going, yeah don't be silly of course you know I you know that I'm going to leave you alone now I didn't and in it's that control. moment you know in that moment I was like okay so you know what what are you bothered about what are you scared about why mm. are we having this conversation and I was so surprised at my response and really from that moment onwards there was this sort of feeling of like I want to know more I want to understand more about my own reactions and others um you know where my fear is where theirs is all of that type of stuff so i then spent and
0: that's such a constructive thing isn't it when you think about that when you the way that you framed it, it is so constructive in terms of like human interaction like this guy clearly had you know fears issues um was maybe uh, misogynistic in some ways like sort of living in the old school the old world but you were trying to break down how you could well, just break down the barriers, basically. And this, so it shows what a useful tool psychology is for human interaction and moving forward constructively.
1: Oh, it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. And and it, it, I, felt, I felt as though I had tools in that moment. Like you just said, tools. There was like something there that I was just interested in. I was curious. Yeah. I didn't feel scared. I did initially. And then I just felt curious. I thought, why do you feel like this? Anywho, so then I spent probably six, seven, eight years doing lots of different leadership roles I started um, training managers and leaders to do their job which I really enjoyed and then again I would sort of come across so many people within the industry that were quite misogynistic um, very directive in their approach um, they had no interest in, understa- in understanding the people that they they managed um, they had no interest in what motivated people you know that this common kind of tagline was jfdi i don't know if you've heard of that before have you
0: not the i haven't heard of the acronym no okay. maybe i've heard of the full thing okay so what the full thing uh, can i swear <laughs> of course <laughs> absolutely i'd rather you did
1: <laughs> okay amazing so J- jfdi stands for just fucking do it so don't ask any questions oh, okay. don't All ask right. any questions just do it because i'm telling you to and there was this right. real kind of feeling of, you don't ask questions, you just do what I tell you to, because I am your manager, I am in control, I am more senior than you. Um, so, you know, if so you want stupid. to get on, it's just madness. Um, and it's the then, opposite of
0: learning really, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, it's the opposite of a growth mindset, which for me, you know, it matters so much, this idea that, you know, none of us ever really become experts, we're, we're constantly learning. And if we think that we are an expert, then, we've stopped learning we're probably not much used to people you know um Hmm. so so yeah so so um there was generally that feeling and then I got this this manager um who was just the epitome of everything that I I thought leadership wasn't about um you know he was a bully um he was misogynistic he was oh cunning he was all of those things that you just think you shouldn't be allowed to manage people and it's a really interesting thing when when we sort of think about management and leadership because typically the reason people become managers and leaders is because they were good at their job and their job is tends to be nothing to do with management or leadership but often Mm. a natural progression is oh you're good at your job so why don't you manage other people doing the job and totally different things I think it's why we have so many issues with bad leadership um, and bad management Mm. in the workplace and you know, because you go from this very individual role where you, you know, care about competition, you care about being the best, hence the reason that you're being spotted for promotion. And then all of a sudden you're moved into this collective environment where you need to care less about yourself and more about everyone else. And, you know, it's, it's a, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And it's a real shift. So so he effectively treated me badly and, and lots of people within the organisation for about um I suppose, about four or five years. And I remember I was about a year in with him and um, I was at an appraisal with him and it was quarter to 10 at night and he was keeping me in my appraisal. It started at midday and he was keeping me there um, just because... What a 10-hour appraisal. Yeah, 10-hour appraisal. I mean, this is the type of ludicrous behaviour. And he said the thing is naomi says your next job is going to be my job you know you need to be a a, a national manager that's your next job but if, if you're going to do that and he sort of used to point in my face a like, lot i can still i'm sort of doing the actions as i'm saying it wow if um if, if you're going to do that naomi you need to stop being nice to people you need to be more like me that's what you need to do and and like i left the appraisal, i was really sort of disheartened but i had this amazing kind of moment of this is always going to be the same in this environment. You know, nothing's gonna change. I'm just gonna mm. feel like I'm pushing water up a hill, you know, because this mm. environment and you know, this guy is a is a perfect example of why this isn't gonna work for me for my career and for my life. So I, I left the appraisal on a Friday night and by this Saturday afternoon, I had signed up for an open university degree course in psychology. Um, I'd always been interested in psychology anyway. And, and it, it, you know, through working with people, you know, for the eight or nine years prior, it had kind of really concreted that. So um so I signed up for the course. I started, I think a couple of weeks later. The Open University for me was just such a wonderful experience. I think they're an absolutely brilliant institution. And they're just so good at supporting people and they're really good at their mental health stuff. They're really good at motivating and understanding people. And, you know, they've really, you know, cut out their trade incredibly well. Um, And it's interesting. Just, I, now- I've
0: got I'm sorry. So sorry. but With the Open University, just like illuminate me a little bit on it. Like, is it I, I always thought Open University was like, just do it at your own pace, basically. Here's the information. Do it at your own pace. Is that not the case?
1: no not at all so you you still do modules but you can do the modules at you so for example you can choose whether you do like three modules a year or six modules a year or okay. nine modules gotcha. a year. so some people do one module a year and it takes them 12 years mm-hmm. um, but but and
0: but there's still interaction with with teachers absolutely with
1: teachers have like weekends away you know you, you've got tutors right. you can go and see every other weekend so i'd go to, to the local university for my tutorials you could choose to do those you didn't have to but i really love the sort of interaction I really learned by talking to people about stuff. So it really, really helped Mm. me. Um, And, you know, I joined the Open University thinking, I'm just not going to be able to do this. So the bit that I missed out is that when I became, um, when I started managing people, I was put on this fast track management course and I was really interested in it. And all of a sudden my brain sort of opened up and I started learning things. And I was like, wow, this this feels new. You know, I I can learn stuff. I'd always had this kind of self-talk about myself that I wasn't very bright. I couldn't really learn um and it just wasn't my thing you know I could talk
0: and that is so interesting that's so interesting because I I was talking to somebody last week the last podcast the very last podcast I did where and it just really reminded me of when I was at secondary school I don't know what it was I don't know if it was my just my the my age my level of development I was like mentally dormant all the way through secondary school I felt like because there were a lot of smart people as well I felt intimidated I didn't come out of my shell at all at school Mm. I love learning now I didn't love learning at all and it sounds like we had very similar trajectories like is there any scientific evidence to suggest that different people have different sort of learning spurts in different times of their life because I did school was a terrible time for me in terms of learning and I just thought wow at the age of 18 you're asked to decide what you want to do in your life but I didn't even enjoy just didn't enjoy education up to that point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, we we put people in age groups, don't we? And we say, oh, you know, within this age group, this is going to be a normal time for you to do these typical things, which has to happen, you know, to to a degree, because, you know, otherwise schools wouldn't wouldn't be efficient. They wouldn't be able to run Mm. as well as they, they would like to. But, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And the amount of stuff that happens to the adolescent brain is phenomenal. I mean, you know, the adolescent brain is so busy developing social stuff. Um, social skills, being aware of all of the social environment, it's, it's almost the worst time to learn. Um, I'm reading a really interesting book. I've nearly finished it. I'll probably never finish it because that's the way I work with books. But um, but it's called Inventing Ourselves. Um, and it's all about the the changes in the adolescent brain. So how children's brains are so different to adults' brains in so many ways. So although we have similar structure, we use different things, different parts of the brain for different things at different ages. Um, yeah. And so for adolescents, you know, they're, they're so busy, they're so concerned about the social impact, what their friends are doing. And at school, you are very social. You are like Ollie, you know, the the tennis player, the, you know, the the very sociable person. So that was probably your role there at that time rather than the academic stuff, maybe at the time. Um and yeah, that was certainly the 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 case for me as well. I I looked around and saw lots of clever people around me and I thought this just isn't my I can't categorize myself like this. You know, I can survive, I'll pass an exam and I'll get through, but but you know that would be it. Um
0: but what you've also pointed towards is the fact that you you were ignited psychologically ignited intellectually ignited when you found a certain area of study that ignited you naturally
1: yeah absolutely and and yeah there's, there's I think there's a reason for that as well so which I'll which I'll definitely come on to I'm, I'm nearly there in terms of understanding my brain you're better. doing brilliantly I I'm just keep I just my brain keep interrupting better. I know it's okay sorry <laughs> so 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 yeah, I I was really interested. All of a sudden, my brain sort of opened up. It was like a sponge. I was like learning stuff. And I could see how things fitted together. I could use examples of people in my team to sort of make sense of theory around leadership. And it all just fitted together beautifully, which kind of made me think, oh, yeah, okay, maybe I could do an Open University degree. And then I started doing my Open University degree. It was psychology. It was really interesting. I remember the first module being on... Um, It was, it was a sociology module um, and I wasn't interested in it at all and I barely passed it. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster. Like this is only like level one, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm never going to get through it. And then the next, the next module came, I think it was on child development after that and that was it. I was in, I was engaged. And then I started to learn that by developing decent learning strategies by, for me, it's really visual. I have to see everything all the time. By doing those things I could almost trick what I now know is my working memory to get information into my brain and use it better Um, and I started to develop lots of strategies as I was learning which made me much more comfortable. I was you know sort of growing up you know in in exams I'd never sort of do particularly well but actually as I developed these strategies and understood my brain a bit better um, you know I'd absolutely ace exams. I'd go in there, I'd I had this lovely strategy where I would I would um, picture a mind map of the sort of subject I wanted to talk about and then I'd oh. almost photograph it in my mind. I don't have a photographic memory at all, it's not that exciting but you know I'd, I'd, I'd look at it so much that I'd get into the exam and I'd draw the mind map at the beginning of the exam and then I'd just write about that mind map and I did really wow. well time after time in my exams. Um, And it was just to do with that strategy. It was just to do with understanding my doorway to my longer-term stores and how I accessed Mm. it. So So the mind
0: map thing, was that like remembering things in a very visual way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's making things small as well. So our working memory is is effectively like the doorway to our getting information in and out of our brains. Um, And some people's working memory, mine, for example, isn't as efficient as my longer-term stores. So whilst my longer term stores when they know stuff can be quite clever with it and think about things critically and make sense of things. If I'm learning something for the first time, it takes quite a long time for it to get in. And then if I try and talk about it without understanding it well enough, it can be quite hard for me to get it back out again. And so that's where my trouble was at school was that, you know, learning things, you learn things really quickly, Um, you know, you have to pick things up and often information is sort of isolated bits of information. They don't necessarily make a story. Whereas for me, if I make a story about something then it's much easier right. for me to access so rather than mm. just understanding sort of independent facts about history or you know mental arithmetic or whatever it might be you know if when, when I'm able to draw a mind map and, map and create a story around it then I can really easily access it so mm. my I did I did a, a, a three-year degree I did it full-time alongside a full-time job which again I was like wow how can I do this I'm doing like you know 60 hour a week and i'm doing a degree full-time at the same time um and i did really it's well empowering.
0: When, yeah it was amazing it was great i was i was on
1: this amazing kind of um um sort of running machine i was just energized by it you know it was great that mm. i was learning this stuff about myself And I was also so excited about um, moving away from an environment that I didn't want to be in, which was pharmaceutical leadership at the time, um, and moving towards something that I was really excited about. You know, the idea of being a psychologist was really exciting. I really wanted to learn more about the science behind people at work. Um, And so I was really driven by it. So finished my degree, went on to do my master's in occupational psychology, Again, similar type of things happened. I'd be in a room of very clever people. They'd be having, you know, we'd have a lecture and they'd be sort of saying all of these wonderful things. And I think, yeah, I'm miles behind what you've just said. I've not absorbed the lecture at all. You know, I can have this conversation in a week's time once I've made sense of it. But right now, it's just not going to work. But rather than being overwhelmed by that, which would have happened at school, I just knew that that was just the way my brain worked. Um, So, you know, I draw my maps. I'd find ways to learn things. um, And again, did well in the master's. So then after you've done your master's and if you wanted to become a psychologist, you have to then do stage two, which you can either do a PhD or you can do a chartership. And I went the chartership route because I wanted to carry on doing practical stuff. And although I really enjoy research, I wanted to do more hands on stuff with people rather than, you know, 100% research, which is what the PhD would have looked like.
0: So if you get a PhD, can you still have sort of clients, you know, and and give them counselling?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So they're just different, different ways to go, but they're you still become an occupational psychologist through doing it, they're just okay. different routes. So mm-hmm. some people, prefer, you know, heavily research stuff who will often go on to do academic psychology, you know, lecture, those types of things. And then the stage two is for people more generally that are going to do stuff in practice, in business, for example. Um right. So um, in order to do my stage two, I needed to almost get a sponsor. And I went to work for an organization called Genius Within, who are brilliant. They were an organization who specialised in neurodiversity, which is, you know, the was the, was the the penny dropping for me in terms of the way that my brain works. So, whilst we were doing the training, um, neurodiversity is is an umbrella term for dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, ASD, dyscalculia. There's there's many under the umbrella, and neurodiversity. Simply means brain difference. So neurotypical is brain same, and neurodiversity is brain difference. And so during my training, and as they were talking to me about um, you know, what it is to be neurodiverse, so many things resonated with me. Um, you know, forgetfulness, lack of concentration if I'm not interested, um, you know, challenges with learning, but also having this feeling that. You know, I, I, it wasn't that I wasn't bright, you know, because there were some things that I got, and I had the example by this point of my two degrees, and I thought, yeah, I can learn. It, it, it was just a very different experience from school. So mm. part of the training, um, we, we tested each other, and you know, as part of a practice, and I found out that I have a neurodiverse brain, which means that of the four areas of our brain that we measure when we're looking to see how people's brain function, we look at people's verbal comprehension skills so how they use the world of language literacy to make sense of things to problem solve to articulate Mm -hmm. themselves to influence people your verbal comprehension skills are insanely good um they're very very good you're just so (laughs) easily uh, able to no no but I, you know it's so true anybody that you speak to would say the same you know you're influential you're you're charismatic, you make sense of things, you make, you know, big ideas sound very simple, um, and that's to do with verbal comprehension skills. And then the next area is our verbal, um, uh, sorry, our perceptual reasoning skills. So that's how we kind of do the same, but with spatial and abstract information. So again, how we problem solve, make sense of the world with with stuff that isn't literate. Um, and then the and, and those two areas are, are what we do with information once they're in our longer term store. So once we've learned something, how well we are able to manipulate that information, make sense of it, problem solve, etc. Mm-hmm. And then the other two mm-hmm. areas of our cognitive ability are our working memory and our processing speed. Now, and, and our working memory is, is simply to do with how many pieces of information, how much information we can hold in the short term to get information in and out of those longer term stores. Um, it's also really linked to emotional regulation as well. So, and anxiety. So the classic example of, of a clunky working memory is when we're presenting or when we are sitting in an interview, and we forget what questions just been asked to us because we're stressed mm. and our working memory just shrinks. Mm. It just goes, forget yeah. it. Um, so that's our working memory. And then our processing speed is to do with how we sequence things and how we put things in order, how we order information. So, Neurotypical thinkers, and um, whether they're, you know, not very bright, IQ-wise, moderate, or you know, insanely bright, each of those four pillars of ability will be within a similar range. So they'll they'll work at about the same speed and efficiency. So, you know, when information's coming in, we can choose which information we we, we decide we want. We can hold it for long enough and we can get it into our longer term stores. And then similarly, when we're getting it so out pretty of our- functional term, Really functional, yeah. Everything, Everything's working at the same <clears throat> speed. So, you know, if you're not very bright, for example, often you don't know it, you know, you don't recognize it because you're just happy because things are just moving as you think that they should do. Nothing feels out of, out of order as such, you know, things are working as you would expect them to. With a neurodiverse brain, on the other hand, um, what happens is one or two of your cognitive um, abilities, so typically processing speed or working memory, are significantly lower than your longer term stores. So they're not Mm -hmm. working as efficiently. So learning is a really key thing for this. So when you're trying to get information in and out, Your longer term stores are kind of, you know, working at potentially, you know, faster speeds as such, although it's not in speed, but, you know, you know what I mean, than your working memory. So I always refer to working memories as being a bit clunky. They, you know, they're just a bit slower. They're just not quite as efficient. Um, So what that can mean in neurodiverse brains or thinkers is that it doesn't, you know, things don't make sense because why is it that I'm able to, you know, to make sense of that and have a really decent conversation with someone. And yet when I'm asked to do a, you know, mental arithmetic in my head, for example, I can't, you know, these things don't balance. How is that so different? And so for mm. neurodiverse thinkers, it's that kind of feeling that actually, you know, I'm not academic and I'm not a good learner. Um, and it's it's wrong. It's an incorrect label. It's just about the the environment that you're learning in, the strategies strategies that you put in place to support your working memory and your processing speed. Mm. Um, so anyway, so I'm I'm learning about neurodiversity. I have an assessment done, and they say, "Oh yeah, by the way, did you know that you know you're neurodiverse?" I said, "No, I didn't at all, but this is very interesting." They said, "Yeah, whilst your processing speed is crazy fast, probably the reason that I talk so quickly. My processing speed is really fast. My verbal comps good. My perceptual reasoning's pretty good as well. My working memory is about the 30th percentile." So there's a big difference between how that's working compared to the other areas of my brain, and um, which right. absolutely makes sense when I think about school. And actually it's hereditary, Ollie. So the likelihood is, is that you have a type of neurodiversity as well. Imogen has dyspraxia, so she is neurodiverse. So as a family, oh. Um, and I assessed Dad years ago as well, and he had a neurodiverse thinking style as well. So, so you know, it's really interesting when we think about learning then and we think about, OK, it's not to do with cognitive ability or potential. It's just to do with everything moving, you know, at similar speeds and wow. having strategies. And having
0: that, having that awareness, having that knowledge of how your brain works can help you, can give you the key to learning, basically. Absolutely. It's so key. It's so Absolutely. important. Absolutely.
1: It's it's so freeing because you know now even now you know I'm so much more forgiving of my brain in different situations. Like I know if I'm working with clients, if if they say something to me and I'm having a conversation, I'll say to them right at the beginning of our call, just so you know, I have to write things down or I'm going to forget them. So if I start writing things down, please don't think I'm not connecting with you anymore. It's just that if I don't, it will go. And they're the types of things that I've learned about myself, and um, and it's okay, you know, it's I, I'm not I'm not asking um for um for you know I'm, I'm not apologetic for it it's just it is the way my brain is and the way that i like to think about neurodiversity as well is that if we think across those four pillars we have this overall cognitive amounts across these four areas and with neurodiverse because it's just kind of a bit unbalanced so you know it means that my verbal comp has more stuff as a result of my working memory being clunkier so mm. When mm. I then think there's a brilliant book, if anyone's interested in neurodiversity, there's a great book called The Power of Neurodiversity. Um, and it talks about how, you know, by 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 putting some of the resource in another part of the brain as such, it's making that much more efficient. And there's some lovely research around neurodiverse thinkers being um, sort of an evolutionary advantage to saving our planet because neurotypical thinkers can tend to come up with solutions faster then you're a diverse thinkers generalizing massively here, but but yeah, that, that's the general trend because it comes faster, but the solutions aren't necessarily as good. So when we look at lots of the sort of change makers in our society today. Many of them are neurodiverse because they come up with a thinking solution. Thinking outside not, the box. Yeah, they come up with a solution, but then they go, "But is there a better one? Let's keep thinking about right. the problem. Let's think about the problem more deeply from through a different lens." And obviously, I'm talking about clever neurodiverse thinkers here. You know, just with neurotypical thinkers, it's not linked to IQ. You know, and um, it depends where you sit. Um, you know, in terms of you know cognitive ability. Wow. But you know, so many people that we look at. Um, you know, in terms of people that are making difference in our world, are neurodiverse. And so there's this lovely bit of research that talks about how neurodiversity is about us developing as, as human beings in order to think differently about our problems and not react so quickly and come up with short, shorter term, um, you know, problem solving or solutions that aren't necessarily as, as good um so i really like all those different all
0: of the all of those different types of you know brain functions functionality like those different modes of thinking they're all useful in the world but it's so important to know about you know how each brain works so that you can optimize each brain like i just think that's fascinating so in your job now do you is that a lot of what you do are you doing these assessments to find out how people's brains work so they can then go and be great or or find new strategies for optimizing their own um, productivity and intellect
1: yeah absolutely so so there's some there's quite a lot of direct assessments i do so i'm asked to do assessments for quite a lot of um students at the universities locally um and through quite a few um different organizations locally i will be an assessor for them so i will go and um yeah assess and diagnose them but through all of the coaching work i do inadvertently lots of people come to me mid-career um you know at, at a point of burnout or at a point of not understanding why they're just not getting on in their career, why they, you know, aren't managing to stay in the office or why they're falling out with people or whatever it might be, you know, um, and often through our coaching sessions, as part of some of the coaching that we do, we may do a cognitive assessment anyway, not necessarily as a diagnostic, but just as an information gather to tell them more about, you know, their sort of brain preferences, because whether you're neurotypical or neurodiverse, I think it's always useful to understand, okay, well, how, how good is my brain at these sort of different things anyway? You know, it can really build confidence. It can help you to sort of, you know, reduce imposter syndrome, for example, as well. And sort of inadvertently through quite a lot of those assessments, actually, I'll recognize that somebody has um, a neurodiverse thinking style. And then at that stage, if they want to, we can go on and do a, a sort of full assessment to understand the sort of flavor of their neurodiversity. So whether it might be dyslexia or dyspraxia, for example. Um, it's, so it's so really, yeah, it's,
0: it's interesting. really fun, so go
1: on. Go on, no, no. Yeah, I was go just
0: going to say it's this is this is fascinating because, I, as usual, I don't know what I'm talking about, but i have be, been I was watching recently this um program called Persona the Dark Truth Behind Personality Tests.
1: Okay, have you heard about this? No,
0: definitely something that you would be interested in. It's all about Myers Briggs, it's about the oh, genesis of, oh, Ma- of Myers, don't start it's about me. the gen. <laughs> but this is interesting because again, like you're going to, you're going to, you're going to illuminate now me this the, my information on myers Briggs and stuff because basically the this documentary suggests that it's re- the whole Myers-Briggs thing is really unfair because uh, crucially it, it's not the test itself but it's the fact that employers can get their hands on yeah. the results of these tests yeah so and that is that discriminator prejudices them so people are other some people are getting picked over others based on this Myers-Briggs thing and so the yeah. persona this, this documentary is all about that controversy and so you know where does that fit in with what you've just been talking about
1: so, so psychometrics are, uh, are brain measurements. You know, there's different ones for different things. So, what we were talking about were, was cognitive assessments. So, that's to do with how your brain functions, how it learns. Personality mm. psychometrics are something totally different. So, um, Myers Briggs, for example, is um, is a a test that suggested that, that suggests that there are 16 types of people in the world um Mm. what do you think about that do you think there's just 16 types do you think you could classify people into 16 types I I was
0: I don't know but I was always quite taken by Marcel Proust I read this book um, about Marcel Proust once and he always thought there were eight different types of people so eight character types I suppose and it was something that I was quite taken by even though you know I had no way of quantifying it and I really don't know the answer to that question
1: so I, so I would guess there yeah. are more
0: nuances, there are more layers of yeah. different people. But you do see character traits, lots of common strands Absolutely. of character traits in people. Yeah,
1: it? so so personality traits, like you say, personality traits often cluster together. So like extroversion and risk taking, for example, are likely to come together. They don't always, but we cluster them. We do this thing called factor analysis where we do the right. statistical um sort of stuff on on the types of characteristics that, that are more likely correlated to happen together. There's a higher right. correlation. Yep. Um, and that's a load of so, rubbish, is it as well? It's, that's it's, really it's not a load of rubbish. No, 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 It's useful, but it's so reductionist. Oh. It it suggests that human beings are, you know, this easily predictable kind of you know a 16 type you know group. I mean that uh, for me, I can't, you know, personality is one small aspect of so much more of what we are as human beings, you know. Um mm. you know physically cognitively socially emotionally all of those things and more and you know personality is just one bit there's some really lovely there's some really lovely research around personality and i think it can be useful and i think it's a nice to have rather than a need to have so there's many different types of personality tests um, MBTI was actually one that I did Myers-Briggs was one that I did um early in my leadership very popular Myers-Briggs yeah, right I, extremely biggest, popular yeah in terms of organization it's the biggest and it, it, it can be really useful for team building um, and helping conflict within teams And um, because what it, and t- it was
0: created by, it was created by a nurse and her daughter i think it, i yeah. think she was a nurse and her daughter like somebody that didn't really wasn't hadn't really studied that in the area um in at all in their lives but then just came up with this incredible theory which ended up being sort of world famous it's really it's a fascinating story
1: i think it's based on lots of the sort of pre-psychology of the big five so the big five were the first kind of um robust uh personality measures i think it was goldberg don't quote me on it but i think it might have been goldberg but that, that did the big five no, i, mean, and you're, he... on I know, you're on the record i know i know it's a disaster no, don't, don't put my name Your on it don't put... i know it's over <laughs> don't put my name on it um so so he talked about these five um Um, predictable, robust personality areas. So there was openness the the, the anagram is that the right word? Anagram? I think so. is ocean. So O is for openness C is for conscientiousness E is for extroversion A is for agreeableness and N is for neuroticism. Um, I think it's an
0: acronym but don't quote me.
1: Acronym Is it an acronym? It is. What did I say?
0: You said an anagram
1: An anagram (laughs) Which I I think, I think
0: that's somebody that turns up and strips off in a pub. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing.
1: So, so, um, so it started with, 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 it didn't start, but this is the one that has got the most research behind it. You know, it's kind of used a lot. And I think NBCI came off the back of that. Um, and there's a big difference between type personality and um, theories and trait personality theories and and where um, Myers-Briggs went was type personality so the suggestion that we can have these types of personality and there's so okay. much um, sort of um, conversation research and, and arguments about this in the field of psychology between you know can we really type people or is it about traits so for example if we look at extraversion and and we put it on a a polarity you know we have introversion one side and extroversion the other you're not either introverted or extroverted you're you know somewhere along that line somewhere along that spectrum for each Mm -hmm. of these different personality traits whereas when we talk about personality types like mbti you're not really considering how extroverted someone is or how introverted they are you just give them a letter So, for example, it's ESTJ. So they're um, extroverted, they're sensing, they're thinking and they're judging, but it doesn't tell you how Mm. much. So what it means is that we've got these 16 types, but we don't know much about how much of each of these they are. So, you know, on extroversion, for example, you know, there could be one to 50 in terms of a point of extroversion. You could have somebody highly risky, running around naked all day, smoking, drinking, taking class A drugs all the time as an extreme extrovert. And then you've got another extrovert that just like it's going for a drink after work, which makes them mm. less introverted. And yet you're putting right. those into the same category. You're giving them the same letter to to type them. So for me it's mm. not useful. Um, It's not useful in terms of understanding self because, you know, we're so much more complex than that, but MBTI is often used. Absolutely. It's used in organizations to help people understand those, um, those spectrums of each of the different personality types. So let's say that you've got two people in a team, one's analytical and one's amiable. The analytical will tend to want lots of information before they make a decision. The amiable will just want people to like them before they make a decision. So it's helping people to understand how they might have different approaches to work. So in that way, it can be useful. You know, it can help conflict. And it's a nice way of sort of helping to understand yourself slightly more and understand others. So it can be useful. From an ethical perspective, I really agree. I think that organizations, unfortunately, aren't trained at understanding what the figures mean or what the numbers mm. mean or the letters mean. And they can most certainly promote people based on just a, a personality psychometric, um, which is ludicrous because, first and foremost, you know, let's say, um, You know, you've got someone whose value and personality trait is, you know, authenticity, they can't lie um, versus somebody that can lie. And although there are lie scales in these um, personality psychometrics, they're they're certainly not unbreakable. So you've got two people, one of them is answering in a completely authentic way about their approach to work and someone else isn't. And then you're measuring that based on the outcomes. Because remember, with these psychometrics, they're all self-report, so they're all what you think of yourself. They're, they're not based on your skills, your abilities, your approach to work. All they're based on is your own view of yourself. So mm. they can be really risky. And yes, I think that they're most certainly in in organisations can be used in the wrong, you know, in the wrong way for you know overseeing people or not understanding So it's you know,
0: not something that you're into then basically.
1: No, so I do do personality psychometrics like hilarious that I say that but I certainly don't use them in that way. <laughs>
0: mm. So No, fair. no but that's that I think that is the critical difference like it's it's one thing explaining that to a client, you know, doing the personality psychometrics with a client but it's when you're giving this information to employers on mass that that that's that's where the discrimination happens because people are getting chosen based on these tests which aren't necessarily fair and aren't yeah, necessarily absolutely. fair representations like you say of the person but um and there's a big cultural thing. Into roles based
1: there's a big hmm. sort of you know western cultural thing with that goes with it as well because you know myers briggs for example is western tool based on western personality traits that have been clustered in a certain way so they can be really discriminatory in Inadvert-, inadvert, inadvertently, I can't speak. It's that like and Coke. Inadvertently, very discriminant as well in terms of you know the view of what a good leader looks like or not. You know, so there's, there's lots yeah. of ethical conversations around that as well that that happen and go on a daily basis. You've, so, you've um, already
0: touched upon it. You've already touched upon it, but in general it, and in all your experiences, what are some of the most powerful practices and mechanisms for a healthy mind and how do we nourish the brain for happiness and contentment? It's a big old question, I know, and um yeah. I'm asking you to answer it on the fly, but like just throw some stuff at me of stuff, you know, things that we can do in your experience and you know through and what you know what, what do you tell clients in that in that respect in terms of having a healthy a healthy brain healthy mind positive mindset and yeah being happy
1: um yeah it's, it really depends on the client but i think generally it's to do with noticing stuff so you know we are designed awareness to, yeah we're designed to like ignore bad thoughts aren't we i don't feel happy right. let's just get rid of it let's push put, let's ignore anxiety let's not talk about it yeah let's not tell definitely. people that i'm unhappy let's just be happy you know happiness mm. seems to be the only accepted emotion um which is just wrong. You know, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to cry, but it's the judging mm. that goes with it and it's the ignoring it. So, you know, lots of the practice right. that I do with, with my clients, you know, when they, they come to be burnt out or overwhelmed is, you know, so mindfulness practice. I, um, I work for an organization that uses a lot of act, which is a type of CBT and it's called acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's all to do with being in the moment, very, very mindful, very similar to lots of mindful practices in that way um it's to do with saying okay i noticed that i had too much coffee today or i noticed that i'm just feeling exhausted i noticed that i'm worried about this weekend i noticed that you know i don't feel great about my position at work i noticed that i don't think my manager likes me whatever it might be it's you know having that really open conversation and it's and it's using the words i noticed that before each thought or feeling um in order to recognize that they are thoughts you know they really are thoughts and when we keep thoughts in they become these powerful demons in a non-spiritual way you know that, that kind of fill us up with fill us with dread fill us with you know uh all of these feelings Absolutely. of insecurity but when we say them out loud you know when we notice that they are thoughts and we notice that you know, the, the we're not
0: the only people that have them as absolutely. well. You know, we notice that everybody has absolutely. them. That's, that's is something that normalizing, which is really
1: is that normalizing yeah, absolutely. isn't it? You know, so mm. many people go through, and I think organizations, you know, it festers there because there always has to be this position of, you know, I'm capable, I'm emotionally regulated, I'm all of these things, which is so unhealthy, you know. Um, and it's not to say that you should go to work and choir every day, but, you know, not, not the case at all, but you should be able to whether you know with your teams or whether individually be able to notice your thoughts and feelings and take yourself away when you're feeling overwhelmed and you know just notice how you're feeling whether you write it down whether you um you know say it out loud whether you 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 say it to somebody i think it's important to do it in a practice rather than a conversation because i think conversations are typically transactional and i think Mm. for um act practice or for mindfulness practice it's useful for it not to be commented on you know it's not about an interaction it's just about your thoughts and it's about saying them out loud and recognizing them hearing yourself say them um and it's something that you know over the years has just worked so well with clients and I use it a lot now as well when I get overwhelmed I'll just you know come and Sit with an A4 piece of paper and start writing. I noticed that, I noticed that, I noticed that. Right.
0: And it's really free. Awareness is so important.
1: Absolutely. Because, you know,
0: if you you let this stuff bubble onto the surface, then it can also manifest in different parts of your lives, can't it? In in a completely unrelated area, you know, and manifest as anger or, you know, selfishness or other things. It's all about the awareness. Interesting. I've thought lots about this cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, we talk about identity and we talk about people's. And natures and people's personalities is is it not just do we not just all have certain behaviors at different all we all have all of the behaviors at certain times so rather than it being a personality trait part of your identity can any behavior be sort of programmed out of you and in 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 that sense is nurture much more important than nature
1: so let me write this down can behaviors be programmed out of you
0: I mean if it I mean that's the whole idea of cog- cognitive behavioral therapy isn't it it's like this guy he's really angry all the time so we're going to do CBT on him to stop him having those angry behaviors rather than him being somebody who is angry by identity yeah. can we do we all not just have like all these behaviors and you know we just have to try and yeah as you say be aware of them um, learn to channel in different ways learn to so yeah uh, positive affirmations for example that's CBT of a kind isn't it and yeah, yeah are, are we all not is it all just behavior or is it an idea? Is it nature or is it nurture?
1: So that's a massive question. So in terms of the CBT stuff, um, so act is a type of CBT, but it's kind of further along the line of CBT. So it's like the third wave where rather than trying to reframe stuff which often lots of CBT stuff does, act is more about understanding well, is the behavior useful or not? So if I'm angry, is it useful that I'm angry? Because if it's useful that I'm angry, then let's stay angry. Let's just get it out. You know, mm. let's not just dampen it down and pretend that it's not there. Um. So, so yeah. But you know, um, people are
0: described as. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but you describe no, no, no. people as an angry person. You know, we always talk these days. I think it's so popular. It's so on vogue to call people narcissists. But I would. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would say uh, everybody's a narcissist, basically, except me. You know, that's, that's basically the case with, every, with everybody. It's the worst insult that you can throw at somebody. I just think they're a bit of a narcissist. Uh, but, but you know, like, is it not? Uh, so I would, I always resist that sort of idea of identifying somebody as a narcissist. I would prefer to say they are exhibiting narcissistic behaviors, because I think yeah. any behavior can, 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 anybody can, anybody can exhibit any behavior and anybody can get rid of any behavior by being aware of it.
1: Yeah. So when we come to narcissism, for example, yeah, I think it's definitely overused. Um, narcissism, I I would argue isn't something you can get rid of. Um, it's um, really yeah. It's less about behaviours. Like yeah, people can have narcissistic behaviour. You're you're absolutely right. But but narcissism, as it's in its in of itself, is a a cognitive disorder. So or a cognitive difference. So it's okay. a mental health sort of thing. You know, similar to something like ADHD or. Um, ASD or um or bipolar wow. or something okay. along those lines. So it's it. But yes, you're right. It's definitely on vocal. I thought I
0: was asking like a massive intellectual question, and you've just broken it down in one <laughs> sentence. <Sorry. laughs> I'm sorry. It's Brilliant. It's exactly why I'm asking. It's exactly why I'm interviewing you.
1: But yeah, so so narcissism as an example. In terms of the behavioural stuff, though, you know, are some people, you know, the nature nurture stuff. So yeah, I think it's a combination of both. I think that. You know, our environment, our, you know, our, our our nature environment, you know, from the moment that we're in our you know mother's womb is the beginning of our environment, the beginning of our brain learning, you know, and our, our brain is very behavioural in terms of you know learning, appraising, knowing what's good and what's bad, what makes us happy, what makes us sad. So it's always learning and learning, and learning so if we think about that and then we we come out we're growing we're learning it's definitely environmental in terms of the reinforcement and stuff there's definitely genetic stuff there as well before in terms of our temperaments um and and how we view the world um but our brains are designed to reduce information because if we woke up let's say seven o'clock in the morning and we had no ability to you know to 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 understand what our environment was you know within 30 seconds our brain would be at full overload and we'd you know we'd be back asleep again because we've got tens of thousands of pieces of sensory information hitting our our retinas and our, all of our different senses uh, all the time so from a very young age we learn to categorize stuff so we make things small so that we can make sense of them quickly and 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 then we develop what we call system one so I think we might have talked about this a bit, bit before so um so system one is our survival brain it's you know what moves our hand when we touch something hot it's what you know you know recognizes that there's a bus coming when we cross the road it's you know it's an automatic part of our brain um that keeps us safe um and keeps us alive um and and you know and all of the rest of it but it's kind of outdated because it was really useful when we used to sort of be running away from animals but these days we're not anymore so we still have this system one running with all of the anxieties that go with it and they manifest in different ways so system 2 then is, is the is the reappraisal brain so when we think about cdt um, and the practices of cbt or act or any of these types of things it's about um, recognizing that all of us 99% of the time are running on system 1 you know we're categorizing we're making judgments decisions You know, we're making inferences about people and things all of the time as just a Mm. functional part of our brain. Um, And it's about helping people to understand that because of system one, we're all biased in terms of the way that we look at things, the information that we choose from our environment. So it's about recognising that. When we're selecting data about our environments, so and let's say that you know we are suffering with anxiety, and we look at our, out at our environment, an anxious brain will spot dangers more than a non-anxious brain. So we know that that's mm-hmm. the case. We know that that happens. So it's about helping people um, start perceive dangers too. or
0: actual da- are they are they actual dangers or are they just perceived dangers which don't necessarily exist.
1: Well, they're there. They're the I mean, you mind. know. So, so okay. let's say that you look in the garden. You know, I could be looking out to my garden right now and notice that there's some mushrooms out there on the floor, for example. But then, ignore them. Don't really. Don't you know? I, I see them, but my brain doesn't pick up on them. It doesn't do anything with that information. It moves on to the swing ball in the middle of the garden, whereas someone yep. potentially with, with high levels of anxiety could look at the mushrooms and go, oh, they're poisonous, we can't go out into the garden. Gotcha. So we're still Great taking example. the same information in, but it's just the way it's right. the way that we're appraising and we're looking at a Perceiving, threat in yeah. the information that we're looking at. Mm. Um, so, so the CBT stuff and, and all of that type of stuff is helping us to use system two better. So helping us first of all, to gather more information from our environment, and then appraise it differently. So say, well, you know, how do we take the threat away from it? You know, you know, are they poisonous mushrooms? If they were, what would happen? If they were, what would happen, and what would we need to do next? You know, it's it's that type of stuff. So it's about understanding that our brain is kind of on autopilot a lot of the time, which creates and and develops you know all of these kind of underlying anxieties. Wow. <laughs> Excuse me. But by really reappraising things. I mean, in the process of reappraising, for example, so normalizing stuff, we talked about normalizing a few minutes ago. Normalizing is a type of, of thinking and using system two. It's a type of reappraising. And through normalizing by like, for example, you know, I'm a bit down, it's locked down, but everyone's feeling down because it's locked down. That in itself is a reappraisal, it's using system two. And by using system two, we can reduce cortisol levels. So our stress hormone levels by about 15% in a matter of minutes. So imagine when you're like at an angry stage, you're feeling overwhelmed, and then you can just think about it in a different way. You can reappraise the threat and the situation. Just taking that edge off helps you to then, you know, come back on the sort of high road, you know, and and think, you know, um, more efficiently. Um, and you know, under stress we 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 tend to become really rigid in our thinking as well. You know, we get a bit stuck. We feel like we can't Fight move forward. Absolutely. Um it's, um, it's to... really
0: interesting I love what you're saying it's so interesting it is how does mindfulness come into this at this point in time because like okay I, I as you know I'm overall I'm a really happy person um but I do I do I'm a worrier I do worry about stuff I wake up in the middle of the night and start worrying can't get back to sleep about you know perceived dangers things that probably will never happen and haven't happened yet yeah. things that haven't yet happened but mindfulness for me and meditation like the the practice if I can define it I'll do it clumsily as usual but for me the definition is stepping back from your thoughts realizing you have all these thoughts because sometimes you just get drowned in your thoughts and you don't even realize you're having them that internal dialogue but mindfulness is stepping back from that and realizing there's all these thoughts going on and just being aware of it um does that is that linked in at all to this what you're talking about in terms of combating anxieties sort of stepping back and reframing things rather than just letting yourself drown in those thoughts
1: yeah you're you're basically describing system two so exactly what it's about it's about stopping you know and just you know stepping back from the emotional data so the emotional stuff that we're using to make decisions make sense of things feed our anxiety and noticing it you know and mindfulness and meditation all of these things are about slowing things down and saying to system one i i see what you're doing i can i can recognize what you're doing i can appraise what you're doing and i can actually see that it's not always correct you know system one's great 99 percent of the time but you know, one percent of the time it's not useful. So it's about stepping wow. back and going, this anxiety that you're creating system one, or these inferences that you're making system one about whether my house is about to get broken into or whatever, isn't useful. Um, and so
0: in terms, so is mindfulness something that you advocate then actively? And is the, would you would you suggest to me, would you prescribe that to me as a way of combating my own anxiety, or would you? Are there other things that you would recommend?
1: Yeah, well, the thing is, is I think mindfulness is is such an interesting word that spans across many different practices.
0: Yeah, and um, it's a bit nebulous.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I think that thinking about thinking, so meta thoughts, um, if if we think about that as mindfulness, meta thoughts, so thinking about thinking, then yes, absolutely, I think everyone should do it if they can, if their mind allows them, if they can sit still for long enough to think about thinking, then yes if that's if that's the sort of idea of mindfulness then i think that it's essential for healthy brains in in our environment and our world because you know mm. there's too much sensory information everywhere um and our brain can't keep up so do so you yes, believe I think that it's really useful
0: amazing thank you um yeah i love it i do love it i it's something that's really changed my world like being thinking about thinking i, I was actually going to call a podcast the one that i did with ben one of the ones that I did with ben uzi which you absolutely loved um uh, if I say so myself, <laughs> but, no, you did. you always no, talk, I did. you always talk about that it. one. And oh, I was going to call I was going to call one of them thinking about thinking because it is just it's, it's added a whole dimension to my life. when I realize I actually mentioned it to mum recently and she was really struck by it because she thought, you know, the whole internal dialogue thing. I think that she's thought all the way through her life that she's the only person that has inter- yeah. destructive internal dialogue. But we all have it. And when you yeah. become aware of that, that's the that's mind- mindfulness in a nutshell for me. And it's so, so powerful. and so useful. Um, but, uh, do you believe this? This is a question I really wanted to ask you. Do you believe there are certain scenarios where administering pharmaceutical drugs is unavoidable, um, or can we overcome many to most psychological hurdles like anger, depression, anxiety, guilt with counselling alone? Oh,
1: that's a really interesting one. Um, are there certain situations where you
0: have to administer pharmaceuticals?
1: I do, yeah, yeah. I think there probably are certain situations where you have to, in terms of people's safety um, and and you know preventing them from harming themselves and you know taking the edge off, as it were. Um, I think from a, a research perspective, you know, there's so much to support that a combination of two is is the best bet. So,
0: right. So a combination of antidepressants and counselling.
1: But it depends why it depends on the cause so you know the, the such there's so many negative connotations around antidepressants and um, for example as a as a as a pharmaceutical um drug for mental health challenges um and they're totally misunderstood you know people you know believe that you know they're taking serotonin or they're taking more adrenaline which simply isn't the case i mean antidepressants work by blocking um the leaky parts of of your brain which 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 lose your own serotonin and your own noradrenaline. So all all they do is just help your brain hold on to its own noradrenaline and serotonin better. Um, so yeah, I think every case is individual. I, I see a place for antidepressants, but I think that they have to be used in the short term, they need to be used efficiently. They need to be the right ones for the, for the right person and they need to be used alongside you know psychological talking therapies of, of some description um so, so i you think I, they
0: can be like do you think they can be prescribed too easily and too uh liberally then at times without the use of you know the powerful psycho- psychology tools that we have
1: absolutely well, well if, if you think you go to a gp who aren't mental health professionals you know they're medical professionals right. you, know, they're, they've, yep. you know they've been to medical school for years they will have done you know some time you know understanding the brain most certainly but they're not medical health professionals Um, and they're the people that you go to with depression or anxiety or suicidal thoughts or whatever it might be Um, and their first port of call is that they will go to their nice guidelines and they will follow what do I do for somebody they'll do often what's called the HAD scale which is a depression scale they will ask you a few questions they'll mark you out of I think 15 or whatever it might be and then based on your score they will then decide their plan of action for you Um, which is You know, it's necessary because there's so many people in the world, you know, we've got to have, you know, ways to to treat people, you know, quickly and, you know, reduce suicide rates, for example, but, you know, like the sort of system one thought, you know, it's it's reductionist, you know, it's not good for everybody. so I think that, you know, as individuals, you know, we, we should find out more ourselves, you know, useful, decent information. It's very difficult when you've got depression um, to, to necessarily be agile yeah. in your thinking and do that. But, but yeah, you know, we, we go to GPs to, to ask for, for them to prescribe drugs to us. Um, and of course that's what they will do, you know, um, and there's, there's, you know, it's not that they're doing anything wrong because I don't believe that they are, but they're not necessarily the best people to see. And you have to be very unwell psychologically for a long period of time until you see a mental health professional typically. Um, wow. you know, so, so, so crazy, it- isn't it? yeah it is it really is um
0: there's such a stigma attached to psychology still maybe not so much in america everybody's got to shrink inverted yeah. commas in america but in the uk there's still that real it's almost a bit of a taboo isn't it
1: yeah it, it really is massively less so, um, less so.
0: it's evolving all the time.
1: well i just th- i just think it's sort of um it's sort of indirect now you know it's sort of, sort of um you know people are told that they should feel okay about mental health challenges and, you know, they should embrace it, but they still feel icky about it. I still don't see many people who honestly um, 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 sort of, op- you know, with open arms, um, you know, embrace it. And um, a really close friend of mine um, is works for uh, the charity Mind And we have lots of conversations about this um, in terms of, you know, large organisations that she goes into um, and people that she speaks to globally and how, you know, it can be a tick box exercise rather than a genuine want to change, a genuine want to support people. And it's because, you know, organisations have to now. They have to be seen to um, rather than truly understanding or understanding the value and the challenges that people have. So um, I think it will still take time.
0: How much, where do you sit with this? How much do we know about the human brain at this point? Are we still nowhere? Is it still like, you know, ballpark, like 10, 20 percent of our understanding of the human brain? Or are we at like 80 percent now? And also as an adage to that, um, what what do you think will be the breakthroughs in psychology in the next 20 years? Like, you know, what what's the next big breakthrough as far as your you know, in terms of have you thought about that?
1: So my brain can do one question at a time. So I'm writing it down. 20 breakthroughs. And the first question <laughs> How much was, do we know? How much do we know? Because I we think know. we touched
0: upon it before. How much do we know? Like, how much do we know about the brain? Are we still, like, you know, are we still really early in the journey? The formative parts of the journey of understanding the brain and its power and its, you know, yeah. And also, yeah, what do you think the next big breakthroughs are?
1: Okay, so it is a really interesting one and um, how far we are in as a percentage. I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, I don't know. I think oh, what's on. really interesting. No, I can't. What's really interesting is that there's, lovely, there's a lovely, not a chance. There's a lovely overlap <laughs> right now, which is just happening more and more and more. Where fields of psychology are kind of merging and using each other's knowledge and research to make sense right. of things more. So, you know, neuropsychology, neuroscience, clinical psychology, you know, there's big overlaps now. the the thing is, is that, you know, we, we have, uh, when I say we, you know, psychologists have a good understanding of, you know, the complexity of the brain and, you know, this idea that, you know, there were certain parts of the brain that did certain things has very much been kind of overturned in recent years. And now we understand that, you know, different parts of the brain are responsible for lots of different things at different times, depending on the environment, depending on your age, depending on lots of different things. Um, So it's not as clean cut as it was before. Um, And so now you know, through neuroscience, through wonderful, you know, um, MRI scans and these types of things, we can see where certain areas of the brain light up when we're doing certain tasks. So there's Mm -hmm. loads of lovely information about this part of the brain is responsible for this and this and this and this. this. However, there's then a big leap between making inferences about what that means. So let's say that you're in an MRI scanner and you're recognising somebody's face um, that that you know that, that you know a family member a little part of the brain will light up, um, and then we look at clinical you know examples of somebody where that part of the brain has been damaged. Sometimes they can still recognise people's faces. So we still can't make all of the links. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not clear cut the brain You're is right. such a complex thing so you know areas of the brain in my brain for example might be slight you know millimeters different to yours they're very likely to be so so generalizations when it comes to brains is so difficult you know it's so different to you know like a leg muscle or you know something that is is you know complex but far less complex and um, you know not everyone's brain looks the same um so it's so difficult to to make inferences about what these things mean and and what impact they will have on different people, for example. Um, That's
0: really interesting. And and as you said, like that symbiosis between the different practices, between the different areas of the science is so important. Like a great example is I have a good friend who um, has all sorts of problems with her body, like her livers, her muscles, you know, different parts of the body. And she would basically, in order to treat herself, in order to get treated, she would have to go and see specialists for each part of her body, when clearly the problem was much more holistic. It was to do with yeah. the whole, her whole system and how it was, there were inequalities and things weren't working properly. There was an imbalance, which was causing all of these symptoms. But she had to go and get each of the symptoms treated differently. And each of those doctors would give her drugs pharmaceuticals for for the liver for example or for the leg or for different parts of the body when so nobody could bring all of that information together and say Mm. yeah now I can see the whole picture and this is how I'm going to treat it which I just found so archaic and yeah and 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 it's an area which you know marrying all of the different bits of information is so important right in psychology as well
1: absolutely because you know there's there's so much information out there isn't there you know so many brilliant brains with so much information but not everybody has all of that information together, you know, a brain, mm. you know, you can spend you know 20 years at university and you can still only know like a fraction of a subject, you know. Um, mm. So in order to, you know, to have that really global view, I think that you absolutely need to have really open conversations with other professionals in the same field and not feel scared to, you know, not feel scared to say, I don't know about that. You know, I know nothing about schizophrenia. Tell me, teach me, tell me what it's like, or you know, how we can discuss this. You know, it's it's being mm. open to have those conversations as well, I think, really makes a difference. But yeah, in terms of um how much we know, we know a lot, what when I say we, the world we, you know, um neuroscience knows lots about about brains. Um there's so much more to learn it's just phenomenal i mean the human brain is absolutely magnificent i mean its ability to regenerate is just phenomenal you know this idea of neuroplasticity so you know we can keep growing brain basically is just amazing and so there's so much stuff that we do know and there's so much stuff that's not used which is such a shame you know there's so much information and knowledge out there about the brain um you know in terms of let's say organizational so- psychology or clinical psychology there's so much stuff that could be used more in the public domain to support people i think um
0: how do we collate it all how do we use it all
1: well, that's the thing, you know, it's it, it's getting good practices. I think that, you know, one of the challenges has been is that there's lots of kind of popular psychology out there, you know, pop psychology. So there'll be, you know, lots of, um, you know, mediocre psychology used, you know, with these big big kind of blanket statements, you know, you know, do this for this, or this is going to help with that, or whatever it might be, which often it not very useful. Um, and yeah. I think that as a result of it, you know, people, you know, will say you know, what, what difference will this actually make? And, you know, what can we do about this? Um, so, yeah, I think that that's the challenge. I think the challenge is, is that, you know, it, there needs to be a, a combination and it's happening more and more in different areas of psychology, you know, whether it's educational or whatever it might be where they're using really good psychology to, you know, make changes and to, you know, and to inform strategy. Um, but you need good people along the way that are interested as well to, for that to happen, you know?
0: Mm. I know that you do a lot of occupational psychology, but do you ever treat people who have got physical pain? Do you treat people to reduce the amount of physical pain they have? Because that's becoming no. a, so much more of a thing, isn't it?
1: No, absolutely. No. So that would be more clinical psychology. So that would be linked okay. to, yeah, clinical side of things much more than occupational. Um, so, but it's a real yeah. thing,
0: right? I mean, it's a real thing, like reducing people's physical pain massively by... With psych through psychology psychological therapy
1: absolutely there's i mean there's lots lots of stuff around neuropathic pain and um and that impacts throughout you know the, the link between sort of you know body and mind as it were um you oh. know we we know someone really well that has you know kind of neuropathic pain and the understanding that it's in somebody's head and not real um hmm. you know serves as a problem but actually you know neuropathic pain feels as real Um, You know, if I had neuropathic pain in my leg, it would feel as real to me as if you had your leg chopped off, for example. You know, the pain would feel exactly the same just because, you know, there's not damage to the limb doesn't mean that someone's not experiencing it. So, yeah, there's there's, there's so much stuff around that. Um, It's not something that I deal with at all, but absolutely, um, you know, it's not even necessarily to do with mind over matter as such. It's just understanding, um, you know, the root of it, the reason. Uh, and all of those types of things that, that go with the
0: pain, you know. Mm. Um, I'm being really selfish here. I'm just like flying through questions in a particular, completely random way, but just sort of serving my own needs, sort of getting free counselling, basically. So bear with me. <laughs> but... Um, you know I've been on a journey of discovery over the last particularly over the last three or four years and I've become aware you know much more aware of my own behaviors and I feel like I've got a lot of nervous energy that's something that I'm working on so much because I want to be a more calm person like I've I'm very frenetic in uh, and around other people I suppose I, I've spoken lots to a friend who's a neuroscientist about it and he's said he suggests that you know I feel that other people's happiness is my responsibility which is why I'm so so jumpy in you know in conversations and not not relaxing and just not being calm in general I'm sort of becoming increasingly aware than that aware of that and I want to become more calm um so is there something and do you feel that like we've got the same DNA do you do you ever feel like that because I, I genuinely feel that you have you seem more calm to me now than you did a few years ago is it something that you're aware of and that's something that you work on
1: yeah, it's interesting. is Yeah, I agree. I think that it's something that it depends on my situation. Even now, you know, if I find myself in certain situations with certain people, I will feel very extroverted, very jittery, you know, very, you know, very much mm. a need to fill the silence, fill the space. Um, Absolutely. And, and that I real... put,
0: I've actually got fill the silence in my notes. That was one of the things I was going to say. So, yeah,
1: you yeah, know yeah, there's definitely that as though it's my job. You know, I'm accountable for it. Yep. I'm responsible yep. for that, you know, that real sort of, yeah, over, over, overbearing a bit. Yeah, I think I, think I through the work I've done with other clients actually, it's probably developed that because I do so much work now around values with people and helping people understand their own values and what value that is to others. And I think- So the, does that mean self-esteem? Yeah, it's, it's about, yeah, absolutely. It's about your sort of sense of self. So, you know, what am I bringing? Right. You know, am I bringing my loud voice? Is, is that what I'm bringing to the party? Because if it is, then uh-huh. that's okay. But, you know, then I need to feel okay with that. You know, what uh-huh. is it that I'm bringing? Because I don't need to bring everything. I don't need to be everything to everyone. And I hear myself saying that a lot with clients, you know, this feeling, this sense of I need to be everything to everyone, which is, you know, it's it's not it's not useful. It's not a useful thing to think. Um. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I definitely have much more clarity on, on my own value in terms of what I bring to an environment now. I still notice when I'm... I'm anxious or un- uncertain though about the people I'm talking to I definitely get louder I definitely yeah just just you know create a different sort of ca- character you know and it's not comfortable I love the way you it's said it really nice. quietly
0: I definitely yeah. I definitely get louder you know but um <laughs> definitely but, get louder. but 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 so how do I become more calm then
1: I think it's understanding your what you bring to the party you know do you think that you're enough in life do you think you bring enough
0: right right so it says very much related to self-esteem then i get that i think that's definitely pertinent what you're saying you know
1: i you know maybe there's some neurodiversity as well there in terms of concentration and attention as well though mm-hmm.
0: yeah very interesting so but but then you know is it just about noting it again being aware and 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 having a bit of a strategy to deal with it awareness
1: yeah it's, it's that system two stuff again i go back to it but it's the reappraising like just through learning about it and teaching other people like you know there's this lovely thing called ladder of inference and it's it's the way that when we're in a situation or anywhere we we um gather information so it might be that you walk into a room you know you're a party and you think someone's looked at you funny or um you think you've seen them before and you didn't think they liked you whatever it might be you know if if we're feeling slightly on edge anyway we'll gather information to confirm our biases, you know, we'll gather information to support that feeling that we're not good enough. Um, Mm. And then that, you know, that information we've gathered then has an impact on our actions. So how we behave, so we get louder, then people interact with us slightly differently. And then actually we're creating different data together. You know, we're creating something different. um, And then that informs our beliefs. So then we leave the party thinking, yeah, I am, you know, the loud idiot that's there that, you know, says something stupid and, you know, was overwhelming and whatever you know and it's that that kind of cyclical thing but you know if you know one of the things that you know we spend a lot of time doing when we're, when we're looking actors is, is getting people to gather better data about their environment so you know someone's sitting there in an interview with crossed arms for example or not looking at you well, they might be cold you know it's not because they hate you it's not all about you you know it's about mm-hmm. just stopping mm-hmm. that cognitive lens of picking up Information to support your current beliefs and and going back and getting more data and thinking, well, actually, when I walked into the room, that person smiled at me. And, you know, maybe they're busy. Maybe they've got something else going on in their life. You know, this doesn't have to center around. Um, Yeah. And it's just that sort of sense of self, I think, in terms of it's okay if I'm here and I don't say anything. You know, it's okay. I don't need to be the joker or the, you know, constant contributor. You know, it's okay. And it's okay if I don't say a thing, you know um but it's definitely about gathering more evidence for me it's definitely about not jumping to conclusions not deciding as soon as you're there that you know you're you know you're the least academic or you know the least attractive or the the least funny or whatever it might be you know it's about just stopping stopping that brain like you talk about my you know the mindfulness just slowing things down a bit and noticing other things you know noticing oh that food looks really nice or noticing what the environment looks like and just kind of externalizing some of that a little bit um rather than feeling that real you know
0: overwhelming i'm also i'm also learning the power of shutting up like just shutting up at times like you know the times when i would normally respond impulsively but then Mm. you just don't respond the power of silence is so so good it's a really Mm. important tool for me
1: yeah yeah it, it's Civil so uncomfortable psychology. to start with though isn't it It's so uncomfortable yeah of course absolutely yeah.
0: but then it's empowering over time it's empowering yeah. when you realize yeah you don't have to say it you don't have mm. to be the next person to fill the silence mm. in in coaching um, when so- i
1: started doing it i'm I'm interrupting you now and demonstrating that i've not learned it but in um yes. in in coaching to start with when i sort of used to feel like i needed to fill it i used to physically sit on my hands on my on my chair so it was kind of this physical <laughs> sign to myself that just stop naomi just right. stop you know and it worked mm. you know it was good it was good to tell myself it was okay to be quiet you know
0: yeah so true um several psychologists i've spoken to have suggested that experiences in their childhood shaped their desire to become a psychologist what, um how important is your is your childhood to your overall life happiness how important is it to examine your childhood and to does that help you unlock happiness do you think that do you you think that's important how important is it
1: yeah I think it really depends on your childhood I think that you know if there's been trauma in your childhood then it can be very useful to understand it I think it can be really useful as an adult to kind of reflect on experiences as a child and sort of see them through the, the lens of an adult because you know when things happen to us as a child we often can't make sense of them um, because we're a child, you know, and and everything that we're seeing around us is is right. It's you know what we what you know what we come to learn um, as our kind of learnt situations, our learnt expectations of the world. So I think if there's been trauma there, then it's really useful to um, to you know think as an adult, go back, you know, looking at your child as such and saying, you know, this is what happened. Was this useful? How does it affect me? I think that. In the absence of trauma, um often our childhood doesn't come up too much. Um but I think it's important too, because so much of our decision making is based on all of our schemas that we we sort of learn growing up, you know, what does happiness mm. look like? You know, what does safety look like? Um, you know, what were, were our parents, you know, uh, bothered about stability? You know, what did we see? What did we learn? You know. So I think the more information, the more we can we can um, think about our childhood, our experiences, and understand how they shaped us, and um, the better. Um, and I also think that you know childhood continues. Do you examine life. your childhood? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, have, yeah. I have I had quite a bit of therapy in my early twenties, actually, which I thought was mm. the best thing I ever did. Um, and mm. um, I just thought it was really useful, just to reflect, just to stop. You know to stop in that reactive kind of mode of life and just think about it. But, you know, it's it's interesting how we we think about childhood being the only sort of developmental time. But for me, you know, right. we develop all the way through our lives. And I think that yep. it's useful for us to reflect on all parts of our life. You know, we could have had, you know, a very happy childhood, but then have a terrible relationship breakup in our sort of early twenties and, you know, and- That's and need just to, as
0: important. Yeah, yeah, it
1: can be, it can be, yeah. You know, it can be, absolutely. So I think that it's really important just to be kind to ourselves and give ourselves time and space to, you know, make sense of things um, and, and move again into this idea of system two, you know.
0: Fantastic. Uh, This is just uh, honestly, uh, this is an amazing conversation for me. I find it absolutely intriguing. We're an hour and three quarters in now. uh, Every guest that I have on the show, I send them a list of generic questions, thought what I consider to be thought provoking questions. There's no way that I'm going to get around to asking them all now to you. And I rarely do ask uh, if any of them to to my guests, but uh, maybe only one or two. Is there one in particular that you would like to answer as we as we come towards the end?
1: Um, is there one question that i sent
0: you where you thought oh yeah i really like the answer i'm going to give to that
1: i'm i'm having a little lick now because i've scribbled
0: nice um, of course you prepared
1: scribbled yeah scribbled um didn't cut
0: corners like me
1: <laughs> you should see the scribbles there's definitely not much much <laughs> much
0: <laughs> so well much i know that i was going corners. to ask you about a person that inspires you and you you were struggling with really that struggled one. I, yeah I've really i would like to know what's one. the strangest thing you've ever seen
1: Tortoises having sex. Oh my God. <laughs> Can I ask the question? <laughs> it was so noisy. It was really harrowing. I thought you were going to tell really me you seen harrowing. a ghost or something. No, it's really. A brilliant answer. It was such an awful sound. It just went on and on. It was just terrific And I was, at, I was at a wildlife park with Sebastian, and Sebastian just wanted to carry on, sort of standing there in awe. As I was trying to sort of pull him away from from watching them, it was so it was just <laughs> horrible, absolutely horrible. Um, <laughs> sorry.
0: Brilliant. No, that's absolutely brilliant. I can't imagine if I do this show for another twenty years that I will get a, a, as good an answer to that question as that one. I'm always imagining people are going to say, "Yeah, there was this strange light, you know, like at this time of the day." Torts is having sex. <laughs>
1: They were at it. They were at it. Oh, my. (laughs) That
0: sounds horrific. It really does.
1: It was horrific. It was really harrowing, yeah. I know. You know, I was was thinking about that. I was thinking how privileged I am to have not seen anything, like, you know, horribly strange, you know, like, you know, in terms of. We are so lucky
0: in Gemma, aren't we? We are so so lucky, lucky, yeah. But again, it all
1: comes to it does come
0: down a lot to your outlook in life. Like, you know, whether you see things uh, when you whether you think, oh, yeah, I've had a good life or a bad life. But we have also been exceedingly lucky, haven't we? Absolutely. Uh, Things have just gone really beautifully for us generally in our lives. Like love, you know, uh, we could anybody could describe their family as dysfunctional, but ours have always been a family unit or always been together. And you can't understate you can't overstate the value of having that sort of comfort as you're growing and stability as you're growing up.
1: Absolutely. It's that sort of safe space, isn't it? The, the kind of, yeah, absolutely. Um Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, yeah, there's definitely challenges within all families, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, and that's what they're designed for. They're designed for us to test boundaries, to, you know, create our own identities, um, test our identities biggest challenge challenge people.
0: they're the most challenging relationships absolutely
1: but they they you know they they help us to learn you know social skills you know it's a whole different scenario you know if you think about um you know even even now you know i see myself sometimes you know with family members and i just you know when i get angry i feel like i'm sort of you know a a sort of hormonal 14 year old again almost stamping my feet you know and i think wow Mm. i'd never behave like that without you know outside of family you know it just wouldn't happen but it's almost like, you know, that space where you can, you know, whether it's useful or not, you know, you can very much revert to this kind of childlike um, sort of scenario. Um,
0: yeah.
1: But yeah, I, I, and I, I al- think I think you're right. Go
0: on. I know that I always, always bang on about A, a Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood. Have you seen it yet?
1: No.
0: You've never seen A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood?
1: No, I've written it down about five times. I'm not,
0: I'm going to... Oh my five god. Five it's such a beautiful Four film. Times. It's so, it just fills me with joy and like understanding and enlightenment it's basically this guy guy, mr rogers um like he's, he's in american folklore because he's just this most amazing guy like i'm trying to think of a of an equivalent in England, but they all, most of the, most of the people that were amazing with children, public figures in England, like turned out to be absolute rotters. But, um, I mean, I'm sure there are some <laughs> examples, but anyway, this guy, Mr. Rogers, he basically devoted his life it to, in service of children and, you know, and the, the futures of children. He was like a, a kid's TV presenter, but he was so much more than that. He was such a wonderful human being. He was really just like, he went, yeah, he, he, his motivation in life was to help other people. Mm. And he's, you know, and in A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, he's helping out this guy who's basically a, a reporter with all sorts of darkness and issues from his uh, his background. And he's come to do, do a piece on on Mr. Rogers. And to start with, he thinks there's something dodgy about Mr. Rogers cause he's so nice and he, he tries to find the cracks. You know, he tries to find the, the, the darkness in this guy. But actually, Mr. Rogers is just an amazing guy. And it turns out that it, Mr. Rogers ends up doing therapy on this guy and mentoring him into enlightenment, basically. And there's this one... Um, point at which he sort of he realizes that this guy this journalist um, has got a terrible relationship with his father and he tries to make him understand that all the bad relationship all the bad experiences he had with his dad made him what he is today like not just the you know the darkness the bad things but it also made him made gave him all the virtues he's got because he reacted he rebelled against the badness the darkness that the the lessons that his dad taught him and he re, he react it's like when people have parents who are alcoholics and they become mm. teetotal as a consequence because they react mm. to that you know it actually teaches them it gives them a great life lesson and this is what Mr Rogers is saying to this guy in this scene it's absolutely beautiful and of course it's not always the case but some of the bad stuff that happens to you as a kid can actually shape you in such a good way I make you into the person that you are become because you become aware of that bad stuff and so you you you're always careful to be aware of it and to avoid it
1: so true and I think it depends when you when you when you kind of go through your moral development as well and you recognize things as good or bad as well Um, you know, at what stage that happens. And there's lots of stuff I do on resilience and we have, there's this lovely video about, um, you know, um, copying your parents in terms of their behaviors and whether you become broken records and you become very similar to them or whether you polarize completely, which is just what you were talking about. Because some people Mm. do just become like their parents, you know, if their parents are very badly, absolutely, but it's not always, you know, it can happen. But it's not always yeah. the case. Um, A
0: lot of the time you react to it. You, you react absolutely, and you push away absolutely. from it.
1: Mm. And again, it's that whole individual differences stuff, isn't it? I don't think that, you know, one size fits all at all. You know, we're all so different and we all bring so many different things and people can have horrific experiences and it doesn't have an outward impact on them at all and they become amazing, brilliant people. And other people have terrible experiences and or don't have any bad experiences at all and they become terrible people, you know? Um, so... Yeah you know I I think that there's definitely like risk and protective factors in life I think that protective factors are you know a safe family environment you know good attachments to people around you and, and they're protective you know it means that you're less likely to you know to have you know challenges later in life but it's it's only you know um uh I've lost my word. It's only a, it's only a factor. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to always be the the same. And same with risk factors. You know, risk factors. You could be abused as a child, and um, it is a risk factor that you will potentially abuse again. But it doesn't mean you will. Yeah. It's just you know, yeah. it's all to do with you know correlations, isn't it? And you know how likely things are to happen or not. But it doesn't always mean you know you know. It wouldn't life be so boring if that was the case? If we could predict things based on you know such small well it could be huge events but if we could predict every you know person that was abused became an abuser you know god that would be an absolute and it's disaster. what we've been
0: talking about and it's the overriding theme of the whole conversation what we've talked about we've touched about it time and time again it's about awareness being aware of the behaviours, so you can do something about them rather Absolutely. than not being aware of them and letting them manifest in other in horrific behavior that you're not even aware of why it's happening
1: yeah is it, i was reading a paper a, a year or so ago about um some of the underlying causes of OCD, which isn't an area that I specialize in at all, but it was really interesting because it was talking about the internal voices with OCD and how um, it, it becomes troublesome when, when you have negative thoughts, so sort of negative manifestations of things that you might want to say or do. The OCD behavior is to sort of get rid of those bad behaviors or bad thoughts rather than recognizing we all have bad weird thoughts. You know, it's human condition, mm. you know, weird things come into everybody's head, but it's to do with the appraisal of it and sort of normalising it rather than thinking I'm bad. I need to stop these, you know, these intrusive thoughts by repetitive behaviour. And it was really interesting thinking about that because you know, I considered, yeah, it is about awareness and it's about talking to other people about things, you know, making sure that you share these ideas and thoughts and worries, you know, whether it's bad dreams or whatever it might be, you know, it's, it's when we keep them in, we make them huge um, and they mm-hmm. become really powerful. Yeah, wow. Yeah, A
0: Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is my favorite film ever. And basically, if you want to get an insight into it of what I've just been talking about, then you can type in into YouTube the cafe scene in The Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. But I I I'm I'm um apprehensive to give you that information because I think that maybe if it lacks context, then it won't have the same power because yeah, every time amazing. I look at that yeah, every time I see that scene, it just I I well up and I'm just f- crying <laughs> freely. It's so beautiful. What's your favorite film?
1: It's a it's a really um unadventurous one. It's like, you know It's called know Tortoises Having Sex. You're an absolute film buff, <laughs> so like you're gonna be disgusted at this. Anything with Not a film hoops, buff. I'd say you are you really yeah obsessed with him that's
0: really interesting because he has he's like been really endearing he's been an endearing talent in hollywood keanu reeves he's very much loved now but um yeah, before absolutely. you know he did bill and Ted and all that sort of stuff he was just seen as like you know a a beautiful sort of two-dimensional actor and you know you can say what you like about his acting abilities but he's gone on to like you know do some really really amazing stuff and uh he's beloved he's in the that. industry is he yeah and what but what films in particular have you seen Yeah, you know, what is it that you, you what films I like devils, like? Advocate. I mean, Matrix, I really like devil's advocate
1: I, I mm. really like devils advocate I really like devils advocate because it's quite psychological I love you know it's it's about the mind being tricked by it, you know it, it's like the idea of you know of, of depression being outward you know and and intrusive thoughts you know actually happening so you know you're led to believe at the beginning that you know she's um, you know she's she's psychologically unwell um and actually she's not it's to do with what she's actually seeing um and i remember watching it years ago and and then it was at a time that I was interested in psychology and reading all about, you know, people being institutionalized with mental health differences and how the only way that you'd get out of a mental health um, institution at the time was to say, yeah, I think I'm possibly mad. You know, it was the only way that you could, because if you sort of said, no, I'm not, then they'd keep you in there for life. And it was that sort of idea watching Devil's Advocate that she couldn't do right from, you know, she, she just couldn't get it right. Because even when she was telling the truth, no one heard her, no one believed her. Um, so,
0: yeah, really, really enjoyed that film. Uh, yeah, it sounds like the sort of plight of women in the modern, in you know, through history, basically. Uh, uh, a history of misogyny and men ruling the world <laughs> so badly. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Um,
0: I would say The Matrix is probably one of the, the most influential yeah, films of all time. Like, literally yeah. one of the most influential films of all time. The concept of it and the yeah. way that that concept has endured so much and... People have people really just love that concept and really bought into it. The idea of It's amazing of Matrix, escapism, isn't of... it? It's
1: amazing escapism. It was so, so cleverly done that it was possible. I think that was the thing, wasn't it? It's that lovely link between escapism and it being realistic, you know?
0: Yeah. And people, you know, there's so many people that genuinely believe they are living in the Matrix. They're yeah. living in some kind of virtual reality that doesn't yeah. actually
1: exist. It's, um, it's a little bit like the idea of that Jim Carrey one as well. You know, what was the one where he was, what was it called?
0: Um oh just thinking about it just thinking about it yesterday um what the heck is it called i know exactly the one you yeah, you talk know, about yeah it's, it's the one where he believes he's living in a re- reality but actually yeah. it's all a film set yeah dickens because the people everybody listening just paused now screaming <laughs> the answer <I> know. <laughs> um amazing. but but uh, I am going to um, wrap up now because you've, you've given me an hour and 50 minutes of your time. Absolutely amazing. Such a fascinating conversation. I want to ask you my final question to you. Are we getting kinder or more selfish as, as the human race? Do you Are you hopeful about the future or do you think that it's all just going to shit and that we're actually going to just destroy the planet in the next uh, 50 years or so?
1: It's a massive question. I think the more mindful people get, the more accountable they can get. I think we have we
0: Do we act- get are we getting more mindful?
1: Um probably not.
0: Or are we just getting more greedy?
1: I think so, so I've actually written down on my thing, you know, one of the questions you says was what 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 are the biggest problems facing mankind? And I've put greed and ignorance as my answers. Um mm. because, you know, I think that we're I think that people choose ignorance actually. Um, um they prefer to choose yeah. ignorance. Um so I don't know that it's true ignorance. Um and it's that, so
0: interesting that you say that, like you look at a lot of Trump supporters in America over the last four or five years, and the the actual truth has been right there in front of them in headlines, in capitals, in bold, but yeah. they still choose not to, to listen to that truth. They've but, still got their yeah. own truth.
1: it. but a beautiful example there of confirmation bias, you know, we, we, we seek information to support our own views, you know, and there's mm, also right. loads yep. of psychology there in terms of in-group, out-group stuff, you know. Um, you know, people feel safe in in a group and they love to find differences and distances between people in a different group from them. Um, mm. You know, so there's so much functional stuff there in terms of, you know, fear reduction, feeling safe, you know, collective group stuff that makes people stronger and safer and, you know, more protected. Um, but yeah, our brains are are very, very biased. And I think that until you know, we start opening our eyes to other things, uh, you know, and I also think technology plays a really bad part. You know, you think about all of the algorithms on social media that are, you know, yeah. wired into the last thing that you looked at. I mean, that's got to change, that's got to stop, you know. our, our li- You know, we, we believe that we have this open view to the world, but we don't, you know, based on, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm sure we've talked about, you know, Social Dilemma, the movie, Um, you know, but based on oh, yeah. based on such limited information about us, our, our world view, is is made so small based on um, social media and and that's getting sent down these wormholes yeah Yeah, totally one hundred percent it's almost like
0: not free thinking anymore is it? Your thinking's being done for you. Yeah your curation of life is being done for you
1: which is comfortable for many people, you know, for many people that's comfortable for them, you know, they're mm. surrounded by images that they like, that support their ideas and their values and their thoughts. That yeah, safe they like things. the
0: fact they're being served adverts for things that they actually want. Exactly, or they think they want.
1: exactly, mm. exactly. And, you know, it's just supporting all of that, you know, they're creating this sort of, you know, anxious, you know, the the, the combination of anxiety and happiness all in one, you know, under one roof. Um, And, and I think that until things like that change, you know, the human brain is so, you know, this whole system one bit is so automatic with, you know, we don't have much consciousness about it. So, you know, there's, there's that part of our brain, unless we stop and think and engage in our environment in a different way and choose and actually choose what we're looking at. And um, then I don't think much will change because, you know, we're, you know, we're sort of, this system one keeps us alive. It keeps us, you know, survival happening. It keeps us greedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that people do have the capability absolutely to be far better, um, to, to um, serve others better, um, to be more collective in their views, uh, you know, in terms of the way that they, 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 they help others. Um, but I don't think the environment at the moment is, is supporting that actually. Um, and I think that the massive polarization that's happened recently with, with COVID as well in terms of views and in-group, out-group stuff just feeds that even more, you know, it feeds this ignorance, you know, it feeds this selective watching and thinking and learning about, you know, what, what people believe and not going any further. So I think curiosity, I was reading, I was, I was watching a really great, I'm going off, I'm sorry. I was watching a really great um, lecture the other day um, on racism in coaching. Um, and there was this brilliant professor that was talking about, you know, when we, when we say the word racism, um, our brain does goes down two pathways, um, and it goes to fear. So, like an amygdala hijack in the first bits for all different mm. reasons. Fear kicks in in terms of: Am I racist? Have I been yeah. racist? What do I think about it? All of that stuff that can come up for people. Um, and then there's the other area of the brain, which is curiosity. And he was saying that's the bit. You know, what happens when we have fear around racism as a subject, as an as an area to discuss, is we shut down from it. We we stop being curious. We stop asking questions. Absolutely. And yep. he was like, but you know, if we can just tr- if we can take the fear and kind of go, I notice it's here. I notice that you know I'm worried about racism. I notice that it fills me with fear. I notice those things. But now I want to understand why, and now I want to understand mm. more about it. And um, he was like, that's how this changes. That's how we evolve. Um, and I Having feel like conversation. that's the same. Absolutely. I feel like that's the same. And I, with... it's not
0: encouraged a lot of the time, is it, to have the conversation? Because no, as you absolutely. said, you want to be respectful. You want not to be racist. So absolutely. better just not to say anything yeah. and to try and understand, you know, your behaviours, your programming better.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think that that is the, is the case with so many different areas, you know, in yeah. terms of, you know, subjects, difficult conversations you know often people just go i don't want to have it i don't want to have this conversation mm. what might it mean rather than mm. being curious and it's and not thinking, encouraged and a lot of the time no, it's not it's encouraged not. though is it absolutely no it's not it's not
0: encouraged to have the conversation it's just like you you know it's it's just safer not to have it
1: so so i think there's then, so much
0: emotion around it
1: exactly there's so much judgment around it there's so much like well, what does mm. that mean who who am i then what does that mean so i think that this mm. curiosity thing um you know if if we can be more curious um, then mankind can, yeah, um, definitely develop and do better um, and, and, you know, go past the expectancy in terms of, you know, what's coming next. But I think if we stay in system one um, and carry on just going and consuming and all of those different things that, you know, we're, we're kind of wired to do, then, then, yeah, you know, that greed and ignorance is going to be the biggest problem
0: a wonderful wonderful answer and i've realized that i need to change that question to what's the biggest problem facing humankind rather than mankind it's a horrible term mankind uh these have been two of the most enjoyable hours of my life my entire life um i didn't i didn't lose one gram of energy talking to you in fact i've got so much more now feel,
1: <laughs> me too i feel
0: enlivened <laughs> i feel inspired and i'm gonna i'm gonna ruminate on so many of the things we've talked about and then you're just t- touching on racism there and there's a whole other conversation which we could have but i will i'd like to to do this again sometime but um i'm honored to have had the chance to to speak to you and just to I'm learn so that you much Thank you so i'm honored
1: much. that you asked me babe
0: <laughs> wonderful um, are you gonna go and have another rum and coke now Defo amazing (laughs) thank you so much for your time and I love you boundlessly
1: I love you too too,
0: and and we'll speak again very soon
1: have a wonderful Saturday
0: and you bye Bye. (sighs) the natural high Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website, thenaturalhighclub.com. And remember to subscribe to the Natural High Podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone.